We are thankful for our mothers today. Moms really are superheroes. The best mothers spend their lives acting as reconcilers and peacemakers. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. When people are reconciled, Satan is defeated because Satan loves to cause people to hate and hold grudges. One might argue this is Satan's greatest work on earth. But when we forgive each other and choose to love one another, God is able to do great miracles through us. Jesus says, the world will know you are my followers by your love for each other. If we are holding a grudge, then we are disqualified and on the sidelines of life. We are out of the game. We become useless to God. But when we forgive, we are not only free in our spirit, we are now a prime candidate to be used by God. And Paul, in his letter to Philemon, sees reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus as great inspiration for others to forgive and to be gracious. Good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day. And for Mother's Day, I compiled uh, a few little um, well, Mother's Day cards. Uh, here's the first one. And I thought it was really good. I hope your Mother's Day is more pleasant than labor was. So I think the women get that maybe a bit better than the men. But uh, here's another one for you. I used to have functioning brain cells, but I traded them in for children. <laughs> and uh, I know that's a joke, right? And this one reminded me of John Romani. All moms gave birth to a child except my mom. She gave birth to a legend. <laughs> yeah. And in case you don't know who John Romani is, John's actually working in the transit with the middle school. Great guy. He's the, guy, he's the ninja man that tears the bricks off the wall. He's, never mind, I better stop. And then here's one for Mother's Day. A little boy says to his sister, see, I told you, holding the Superman's cape. So that's how she does it. Happy Mother's Day to super moms everywhere. God bless you, super moms. Now, we're thankful uh, for our mothers today. Moms really are superheroes. The best moms spend most of their children's young lives acting as referees, uh, reconcilers and peacemakers. And I was thinking about my own childhood. That's what my mom did. She had four, four kids, and we we're all very close together, about two years apart. My younger brother is not quite two years younger than me. And I can tell you, we had some nasty fights. It was never my fault. <laughs> it was always his, but uh, that's not true. But uh, the thing that my parents would do is they'd make us uh, hug and make up. And, and that was tough. That was really tough. Because it's every, how, many, how many know it's much easier just to hold a grudge? Everybody knows that, right? It's so much easier just to be mad and stew. But uh, my dad, he, he was smart. My mom, man, they, it's, you got to give him a hug. And so there we are kind of like, who's going to make the first move? I'm not moving. My brother's not moving. Then my dad would say, Hug! <laughs> so we would hug each other uh, because we were more scared of my dad than we were of holding a grudge. And, um, and so, you know, we would hug, and the next thing you know, we'd get an awkward smile on our face. And next, we were best friends again, like instantly. 
That's what great moms do. Moms are in the business of helping their kids be reconciled. In fact, the way that we raised our kids, we, we would not allow our kids to be angry at each other, remain angry at each other. We made them make up instantly. And so the wonderful thing now is that now that they're all adults, they're, they're best friends. They love each other. We thank God for that. That's what good parents do. In fact, that's what Christians do. Christians work hard at being reconciled to one another. This is what authentic Christianity is really all about. Now, you might be wondering today, Pastor Alan, what has this got to do with Philemon, our sermon series? Well, you'll see. And just before I answer that question, let's just quickly do a recap on what we've learned thus far. Philemon was a, was a slave owner, a Christian man. We believe that he was the pastor of the church in Colossia. Some of you have heard of the book of Colossians. Well, that book of Colossians was sent to the church in Colossia, and we believe that Philemon may very well have been the pastor of that church. And he had a slave by the name of Onesimus, and Onesimus ran away, we believe, from, from Philemon and probably stole something from his master. So Onesimus ran from Colossia to Rome because Rome's a great place to hide in the crowd. And while he was there, it suddenly hits him. I have just run away from my master. And if the, if the slave police find me, I'm in big trouble. I mean, he could be severely beaten, uh, flogged. And not only that, but he could have a, a, a branding on his forehead, F-U-G, fugitivus. And I mean, who wants to go around with a massive brand on their head? And so, besides of which is very painful, so I'm told. Uh, but there, here it is. It's this guy, he suddenly realized, I'm in trouble. While he's there, he finds out that the Apostle Paul is there in prison. Now, he would have known who Paul was because Paul was the one that led Philemon to Christ. Uh, Paul would have visited the church in Colossia. Uh, Paul, Paul was well-known in the Christian world, and Onesimus, being in the household of Philemon, would have known who this man is. So there is Onesimus in Rome, and he's thinking, what am I going to do? Who should I go to? Who should I turn to? He says, i gotta, I got to go to Paul. Here's my, here's my chance to get things sorted out. He goes to Paul, and Paul, being Paul, the greatest preacher and teacher and leader of the church, and really in church history, leads Onesimus to Christ. And he thinks, and, and, and Paul says, I, I'm going to get this thing sorted out, Onesimus, for you. I'm going to sort it out. I'm going I'm to send your master a letter. And so he writes Philemon this letter, and he, he says, Philemon, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. I'm going to ask you to forgive Onesimus. And then he says, and, and by the way, considering that I led you to Christ, you owe me this favor. You owe me big time. So I, I need you to do this for me. So what we've done over the past few weeks is we talked about the fact that we all transgress. We all sin we all sin against people. How many know that today? We have, is there anybody here today who has never, ever sinned against anybody ever? Because if, if you're here today and you've never, ever sinned against anybody in your life, you need to come up here and finish the sermon for me because you'll be more qualified than I am. The fact of the matter is, is every one of us is a transgressor. Every one of us has sinned. Every one of us has failed somebody. And it may be intentional and it may be unintentional. But the fact is, is that as human beings, this is what we do. 
We are sinners. We let people down. Do you know what? I said that. I mean, I was very fond of saying uh, that we're all hypocrites. And um, because that's a fact. We, we, all, we, we, we all let people down. We all can fake it. We all know how to tell little light, white lies. We all know how to put the best foot forward, make ourselves look good, even if it means, you know, stretching the truth a little bit. Well, I had somebody come to me once. This is a number of months ago. Came to my office and and she was crying and angry at me, and she says, I can't believe that you would accuse me of being a hypocrite. And I said, but, but I know you. <laughs> you are. <laughs> but so am I. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. You, you made mistakes, I make mistakes. That's who we are. But she could not believe that. She could not accept that. Now, the reason I like to tell everybody that you're a sinner is because if you don't understand that, then you don't understand your need of God's grace. If you don't understand that you let people down, then you won't understand your need to forgive others who let you down. This is what we are. We're a collection of misfits. We're a collection of sinners, a collection of people that just let people down and fail people all the time. That's who we are. Now, the good news is that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're allowing the Spirit of God to work in you, it means you're getting better. That's, at least that's the theory. That's what's supposed to be happening. God is working in us and he's making us into better people. But in the meantime, we need to understand that we need to forgive each other because we need to be forgiven. This is what mothers do. Mothers help their children understand this fact. And that's what we do as Christians. We understand the need to forgive. But not just to forgive, but to be reconciled to one another so that we can embrace each other again, that we can love each other, that we can respect each other. Chris spoke on reconciliation last week. And my nephew, who was here uh, last week and today, he came to me and said, you know what? After what Chris shared last week, I went and got reconciled to my friend. I thought, wow, that's fantastic, William. So thrilled to hear that. He said, uh, I like what you do, Uncle. I think I like to do what you do for a living. <laughs> it just blew my mind. But that's a story for another day. What we need to know right now is that we need to forgive and not just forgive one another. We need to be reconciled to each other. Which leads me then to my fourth message. Because in being reconciled to one another, in forgiving each other, we now become a testimony to the whole world. The whole world looks at us and says, these Christians are amazing. Their religion really does work. Now, you may be here this morning and maybe not religious and maybe not haven't yet put your faith in God in any significant way, but you're wondering, does it all work? Because here's the thing, most of us, when we think about Christianity and the work that Christians have done around the world, we think of the schools that Christians have built for hundreds of years and the clinics and the hospitals and, and the relief and the development and, and the great humanitarian work the church has done. But what about our own personal day-to-day -day living? How does Christianity impact the way that we live from day-to-day? And here's where Christianity can potentially break down. Mahatma Gandhi, when asked by some missionaries why 
he had rejected Christianity. Here's what he said. He said, I like Christ. I do not like Christians. Maybe, maybe you're one of those people today. You like Jesus, you like what he says, but you've known a few Christians, and quite frankly, you're not impressed. That was Mahatma Gandhi. I like your Christ, but I'm not crazy about your Christians. Now, in case you don't know who Mahatma Gandhi is, he was, uh, he's an East Indian leader, the, the great soul in India, who actually was the one through peaceful protest that caused Britain to leave India once and for all. It was Mahatma Gandhi that was able to secure India's independence. And by the way, Martin Luther King Jr., in case you don't know who that is, he was a great African-American who led a great movement in America to bring equality between blacks and whites. He looked at Mahatma Gandhi as his example for peaceful protest. When we look at Gandhi's life, and I've read the biography on Gandhi, it's really quite, it's really quite a remarkable man. But he was, as a young man, exploring all the religions, exploring truth, wanting to, wanting to know for himself what he believes and why he believes. He went to South Africa and was deeply hurt by his experiences there amongst so-called Christians. It was the Christians who were responsible for the apartheid, the separation between blacks and whites, where blacks were considered as second-class citizens. And by the way, because of his dark skin, he was also uh, marginalized and pushed to the side. They were racist against him. And this, by the way, is a thing that blocked his relationship or any kind of relationship with Christ. Now listen to this, folks. He studied the teachings and the life of Christ, and he loved it. But he did not see it as a viable faith because of what he saw in those who called themselves followers of Jesus Christ. So here's my question for you today. It's this. Does Christianity really work? This life that Jesus calls us to live, this life of loving one another, does it really work? Because I'm going to tell you right now, the only way that anybody who does not know Christ and who's looking at Christianity, the only way that they can know whether it works or not is by looking at you. And if you're one of those people that loves to declare, I'm a Christian, if you're one of those people that has the bumper sticker that says, I'm a Christ follower, you've got a fish on the back of your car, they're watching you. They're watching how you drive. That's why I have no bumper stickers on my car. I don't even have a fish, and I especially do not have the logo of Cross Church on my vehicle. And it's not because I'm a bad driver, I'm an absent-minded pastor. <laughs> That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> People are looking at you. They're watching you. They're watching what comes out of your mouth. They're watching how you interact. They're looking at your relationships. And one of the things we always say here at Cross Church is that life is about relationships. That's right. That's what it's about. We talk about our vertical relationship, our relationship with God, and our horizontal relationship, our relationship 
with one another. It's the only time I get to pretend I'm the Pope. <laughs> it's a relationship with God and a relationship to one another, right? We understand that. Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment, which is like the first, is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, the question is this. How do we know we're really loving God? What's the evidence? What's the proof that I love God? Because anybody can say, I love God. I, I play worship music in my car. I play worship music in my house. I read my Bible every day. I read my daily bread. I listen to Joel Osteen. I, lis I've got, I listen to it on the radio. I'm, I'm solid. I love God. Here is the proof or the the acid test of whether or not you really love God. And John says this, if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he is a liar, for he does not love, for, who, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The evidence that you love God is, in fact, your love for one another. Now, does this mean that you can just focus on the horizontal? Of course not. But as you're focusing on the vertical and your walk with God, you also have to focus on the horizontal, your relationship with one another. In fact, if your relationship with people on the horizontal is not what it needs to be, then we have to say then by definition and by this scripture verse that you don't have a walk with God. You've got some kind of a delusion but it's not Christian. So Jesus tells us very plainly that if we are going to love God, then we have to actually love one another. Now, I could spend a lot of time this morning talking about the different ways that we could love each other or the different ways that we should love each other. I want to focus on one thing that we need to do. And in other days, we'll talk about other ways to prove our love for one another. Jesus says that we need to forgive. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, I'm going to tell you, in my Bible and in every Bible and every, every version of the Scriptures I've ever seen, there is no footnote that says, here are the exceptions to this rule. There are no exceptions. Jesus says that if we refuse to forgive others, no matter what they've done, no matter how much we're hurt, your Father will not forgive your sins. And so you need to understand, and I need to understand, that if we're going to have any kind of a walk or relationship with God, if we're going to declare that I, if I'm going to declare I love God, then I have to prove it by loving all the people, all the people in my life. Tell the person beside you, you have to love all the people in your life. Did you say all? All of them. All of them. Okay, that's enough. That's enough. I mean, we don't want to get too heavy. It's Mother's Day, right? Okay, so everybody back here. Jesus says we have to forgive. And that is the evidence that we love God, and obviously the evidence that we love one another. But there's something else that we need to understand. When you and I forgive and are reconciled to one another, 
The Bible is clear that Satan is defeated in our lives. Now, in the 1980s, when I graduated from Bible college, and, uh, and through the 90s and, and even early 2000s, there was uh, there's this, this big movement, if you will, called spiritual warfare. And there's all kinds of books written. I mean, there are dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of books written on the subject of spiritual warfare. And they would tell you how to do, how to do spiritual warfare and how to march through the neighborhood and declare it and grab it and circle it and, and it's ours and it's not the devil's and on and on and on. But here's the thing that you need to understand. When it comes to spiritual warfare, what you need to do is forgive. The quickest way to defeat Satan is to forgive all of those people in your life who have hurt you and offended you. And here's why. Because Paul tells us, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. So while you're busy feeling angry and holding a grudge, and I'm going to get even, and I'm going to, I'm going to teach that guy a lesson, I'm going to teach her a lesson, what you've done is you have literally invited Satan to have his way in your life. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, it, theologically speaking, there's no way the devil can possess a Christian. You know, so anybody gets that notion or that idea, please, no Christian can ever be possessed by the devil. But a Christian, like anybody else, can be influenced by darkness. And when you're holding a grudge, when you're nursing that grudge, when you fail or refuse to let go of the anger or the bitterness, now Satan has got a hold on your life. And it's now influencing every decision you make it's influencing the way you speak. It's influencing and affecting your marriage. Even if, though, even if the one you're angry at is not your spouse, it's still having an effect on your marriage and on your kids and on your job. It's literally destroying you. And I'm going to share a story at the end of the message this morning that, that will help you understand this. But let me just say this right now. If you have been holding a grudge, the Spirit of God is speaking to you today and giving you an opportunity to let go of that thing. You need to say, God, I forgive. I'm going to let it go. There's one more thing I want to point out to you about forgiveness and grudges. Your forgiveness, your willingness to forgive those who have sinned against you has an effect on all the people around you. For so many of us, we'll say, you know, this is my business, Pastor. If I want to hold a grudge, that's my business. I'm going to do it my way. No one's going to tell. Just mind your own business, Pastor. Your grudge, your, your unwillingness to forgive is actually affecting not just you, but all the people around you. And so Paul writes this letter to Philemon. And... And Paul is fully expecting that Philemon is going to forgive Onesimus, the slave who ran away and stole from him. And Paul says, look it, Philemon, your willingness to forgive your slave, 
does not just affect you, and it does not just affect Onesimus. It affects me as well. Look what Paul says here. He says, yes, my brother, please do me this favor for the Lord's sake. For God's sake, forgive. Give me this encouragement in Christ. So Paul is saying, Philemon, your willingness to forgive Onesimus, it doesn't just affect Onesimus, it also affects me. Why does it affect Paul? Because Paul needs Onesimus, because Paul's in prison. And I'm going to tell you, the prisons in, in Paul's day, not like the prisons today, no three square meals, no gym to exercise in, you can't get your degree in prison. Paul needs help. And in Paul's mind, Onesimus came to Paul for his own sake, but Paul sees it as God working it out for his sake. And so Paul says, Philemon, forgive Onesimus, not just because he's now your Christian brother, but for my sake, because it's going to help me. And it's not just going to help Paul, and it's not just going to help Onesimus. It's going to help Philemon. Because we all know when you hold a grudge, it affects you. But not just for Philemon's sake, and not just for Onesimus' sake, and not just for Paul's sake, but for the church in Colossia, Philemon's church. Can't you just see all the people in Colossia just sitting there? It's like watching a tennis match. What's going to happen? What's he going to do? Onesimus has become a Christian. Is Philemon going to forgive him? Is Philemon going to beat him? Is he going to brand him? What's he going to do? And they're asking themselves a question. Does this Christianity stuff really work? All these things that the pastor's been teaching us, does it really work? Can we really forgive? Can lives really be transformed? Can the Spirit of God really change a person's heart? Is it really possible in the power of God to forgive those who have sinned against us? And the church in Colossae is watching to see. Is this stuff real? Does this Christianity stuff really work? I believe with all my heart that Philemon forgave Onesimus. And that church saw before their very eyes the greatest sermon that anybody could ever see. They watched Philemon forgive. But look at this. It's not just the church in Colossae. It's not just Philemon. It's just not Onesimus and Paul. Paul ends this letter with, with this, and I, I love this. This just put a bit more pressure on Philemon, just in case he decides maybe he doesn't want to forgive. He says, oh, and by the way, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's for the sake of the brethren who are working their tails off to preach this gospel. For those who are also imprisoned with Paul. We all need to be encouraged, Paul's saying to Philemon. you got to forgive this guy because we're all rooting for you. Wow, talk about putting the pressure on. you got to forgive because we all know about this. 
Because at the end of the day, people are watching you. And they want to see whether or not this Christianity thing that you keep telling them about is actually real. Anybody can put a bumper sticker in their car. Anybody can declare, I'm a Christian. I'm going to church. You should become a Christian too. Turn or burn. Anybody can say that. But to forgive somebody who has wronged you and hurt you, that's the tough thing. Does this Christianity thing really work? Paul, before he was the apostle, was a, a rabid Pharisee. He was traveling throughout the land trying to stamp out Christianity. He saw Christianity as, as a rogue sect of Judaism that was full of heresy and blasphemy. He was Moving, moving around with the full approval of all the religious leaders of the land, he was going out trying to stamp out Christianity. And one day, one of the newly minted elders, a man by the name of Stephen, was accused of saying that the Holy Temple would be destroyed. Now, in case you aren't familiar with the background there, Jesus, while he was preaching, said that the temple would be destroyed. And this is what Stephen was preaching. He was just actually reiterating what Jesus said. And it says in Acts 6.13, the lying witness said, this man is always speaking about the holy temple and against the law of Moses. And we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the custom Moses handed down to us. The Bible says at this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because rather than being frightened and scared, Stephen looked like an angel. It says his face became as bright as an angel. And then... Stephen began to preach. And he began to describe to the, to the people of Israel the ways that they had through the centuries rejected God and rejected his prophets. And then Stephen said, and you have finally rejected Jesus, the last prophet. And not only did you reject him, you killed him. And then he says these words that just make everybody go hysterical. He says, Stephen says this, he says, chapter 7, Acts seven fifty six. he says, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. They know he's speaking about Jesus. And for the Jew, the notion, the idea that Jesus, the man, could be standing at the right hand of God, they went crazy shaking their fists, screaming at him, yelling at him. And then they drag Stephen out of the chambers and they began to stone him. Standing off to the side is a young man by the name of Saul, or Paul, the Apostle Paul. And he's watching all this. He's heard Stephen's sermon. And he's watched the anger the extreme rage of the Pharisees and the religi religious ruling sect. He watches Stephen. No anger, no bitterness, 
His face is a glow like the face of an angel, the Bible says. It says, and they dragged him out to the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats. And listen to this. And they laid them at the feet of the young man named Saul. Saul's watching all this. And it says, as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, send your angels and destroy these people who are stoning me. No. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Stephen, in his last moments, proved that Christianity works. It's real. Because there's no way that Stephen could forgive people who were stoning him unjustly. But he did. And many Bible scholars believe that this was the turning point for Paul. That all it took was a, was a confrontation on the road to Damascus, that bright light from heaven. And Jesus says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul falls on his face before God, and he surrenders his life to God. But it was because of the forgiveness and the love of this saintly Stephen, who says, God, don't charge them with this sin. Folks, this is genuine Christianity. This is a Christianity that works. And if you're holding this morning unforgiveness in your heart, if you are bitter towards someone, if you're holding a grudge, then you need to let it go today. And it, I'm going to tell you, if you're a parent today, if you're a mother or father, your kids are watching you. I, in 35 years of ministry, have seen how this habit of holding a grudge passes on from generation to generation to generation. I've seen families utterly and completely ruined, and I could mention names of people that you all know. But it's been passed on from the great-grandparents, then to the grandparents, then to the parents, then to the kids, and now it's being passed on to the kids' kids. The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he sets us free. And when you forgive, you are free. Because he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. I got a letter, and I'm going to close with this. I got a letter this past week. It was just so amazing because it was exactly what I was sharing with you today. And I asked permission to share this because it's very powerful. It's very moving. Um, and uh, I asked, can I use your name? She said, yes. And so I want to say thank you to Shirley Grindy, just sitting over to my left. She said, I'd like to share with you what happened to me when I harbored forgiveness and unforgiveness, uh, bitterness and unforgiveness, and what happened when I forgave. My story begins in my teenage years when I was bullied in school. I survived those years and buried the past. As I got older and married with children, those old wounds were reopened, and I went through the agony of dealing with bullying, not once but three times with each of my three girls. A few years later, I had to deal with more bullying with my granddaughter, and we're still dealing with the effects. 
My oldest daughter was impacted the most, and that led her to use drugs when the wrong group in the high school accepted her. She became goth and very disruptive at home. For the next few years, I was on my knees crying out to God for the salvation of my child. I know God keeps our tears in bottles, but I'm convinced from the amount of tears I shed, there's a river in heaven. During this time, I kept ministering to my daughter, hugging her, loving and forgiving her. I told her, you have left deep gouges in my heart, but I have to forgive you because Jesus keeps loving and forgiving me. And if I want to walk in his footsteps, I have to do the same for you. Wow, fantastic. God answered my cries. My daughter is now a Christian. Things settled for a bit, but old wounds kept getting reopened when my granddaughter started getting bullied. And I thought all was well, but the bitterness was buried deep in my heart. Throughout all this time, I was suffering from neck pain and muscle spasms that could only be relieved by a trip to the emergency. And then in June of 2007, while attending the women's retreat at Camp Arnaz, God restored me and drew up that bitterness that was festering in my heart. At the retreat, we were told to sit with different people to get to know each other. And at my table was a former bully. And as she was talking, she hit a spot deep in my heart, and my blood felt like it was boiling. It was going to explode like a volcano. I ran out of the room before I said hurtful things, but I knew what was happening. I knew a restoration was taking place. This is when I found out that deep in my heart was bitterness and unforgiveness against bullies. Gloria, who's my wife, she came after me, but I told her I was fine. I ran to my room and I grabbed my Bible and went and sat by the beach and prayed. I later explained to Marilyn that what had happened. I needed to explain my actions and also apologize to the former bully was sitting at my table. That same year, on November 18, 2007, a minister by the name of Lawrence Trafford was visiting Cross Church, and I decided to go uh, for prayer for, for healing, for my neck pain that was, causing, was caused by stress. Lawrence prayed for me, and I was instantly healed. And she says, when I forgave the bullies, God cleansed me spiritually on the inside, then fixed me on the outside. To this day, I have never experienced the neck pain that I suffered from all those years. And this November 18th, 2017, it will be 10 years since I was healed. And she says this in closing. It is so important to forgive those who hurt us or illness will take over like it did to me. And like the verse says, neither will our Heavenly Father forgive us if we don't forgive. This morning, I want you to know there's a world that's looking to us as Christians to see whether or not this Christian faith actually works. Christians have done great things in the world, great programs for the community, but they want to know on a personal level, does this Christianity thing really work? Can it change my life? Is it possible to be set free from my anger, from my bitterness? And the answer is yes. 
Before Jesus left this earth, he gave us a promise. He said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, it says the paraclete, which means the one who's alongside us. And he's never, ever going to fail you. He's never going to let you down. And when you've got to forgive, and the Spirit of God is poking at your heart and leaning heavy on you, and you know what you've got to do, all you have to do is say, Jesus, help me, and the Spirit of God's going to enable you to forgive that one who has failed you, who has hurt you, who has let you down. How do I know this? Because it's God's idea. Would you stand with me, please? Father, there's a whole world out there that's looking at us to see whether or not this Christianity thing really works. As far as Mahatma Gandhi is concerned, it doesn't. God, we pray that we would be a people that could change that impression. We pray that you would work in us and through us and use us, Father, to be a people who can demonstrate to the whole world that Jesus Christ can transform us and change us. There's a whole world out there that's broken and hurting and suffering, the same way that we are broken and hurting and suffer. And they want to know whether this Christianity thing really does work. God, we pray that you give us the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Give us the grace to forgive those who have hurt us. We pray that we would be reconciled with those with whom we have been parted. And we pray, Lord, that love would just radiate from our lives as seen in the forgiveness that we offer to others. So that like Stephen, we could say, Father, forgive them. Father, do not hold this sin against them. So we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who enables us to live this Christian life that really does work. And so we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me? Tell the person beside you this Christianity thing works.